Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM, let's create. It's not surprising. I mean, each generation has to learn those things and find a way to put some sense of fairness and order in their lives. I mean, little kids, when they play together, when they're little, you know, if you can remember that, you play with kids, you don't think about what color their hair or their skin is or whether they have all their limbs or whether they can talk or see, whether they speak a language you understand or not. You just play. you just like, you're into it. And then somehow, society, your environment, some something, somebody, some combination of factors starts you differentiating, putting yourself above or below or beside. And so there's a, there's a separation from that which is different somehow. And then all I can hope for anybody is that in their adolescence or in their adult life, something or somebody or some combination of circumstances will help them unlearn that and learn anew to play nice. That was Vigo Mortensen. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Viggo Mortensen is one of the very best living actors we have today. I think this is a pretty widely agreed upon sentiment. Whether you first saw him as a villain in Peter Weir's Witness or as a hero in Lord of the Rings, Viggo is captivated. The J.R.R. Tolkien Peter Jackson franchise catapulted Viggo into the limelight. From 2000 to 2004 ish, he was a bona fide movie star. He was offered pretty much every big-budget dream project imaginable. And he said no to all of them. 
Instead, Vigo has spent the past 15 years acting solely in projects he believes in. Three collaborations with Canadian auteur David Cronenberg, a cinematic adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's best-selling novel The Road, shoestring indies like Ho-Ha and Captain Fantastic, the Lord of the Rings franchise provided creative freedom, which led him away from Los Angeles and the industry at large. He even started his own publishing house for poets and authors called Percival Press. His most recent movie is called Green Book, which explores the real-life friendship of pianist Don Shirley and Tony Lip, an Italian-American bouncer who served as Shirley's driver on a musical tour through the Deep South. The year is 1962. Here's a bit from the trailer. Yeah. Some guy called over here, a doctor. He's looking for a driver. You interested? I am not a medical doctor. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. What other experience do you have? Public relations. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? You and the Deep South? There's going to be problems. Promise me you're going to write me a letter. No problems. Tell me that don't smell good. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. I'm the way I know. Who would be interacting with some of the wealthiest people in the country? It is my feeling that your addiction Oof. could use some finessing. Why you break my balls? Because you can do better, Mr. Balawanga. Here's where it gets complicated. Over the past few days, uh, many stories have been reported about an incident that occurred at a Q&A screening for Green Book this past week in which Vigo used the N-word. I'm going to read a bit from Hunter Harris's piece on Vulture. Mortensen and his co-star Mahershala Ali were talking with moderator Elvis Mitchell at a film independent present screening about how the movie's interracial friendship fits into a larger conversation about racism in America. Still from the article. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Mortensen used the word to illustrate a point about progress. For instance, no one says blank anymore. Audience members from the event said everyone was stunned. So here's the timeline of all of this. Uh, the screening took place on Wednesday night. There were some initial tweets that gained a little bit of traction. I spoke to Vigo Thursday morning. Um, I obviously had not... Seeing these tweets, I had not heard of the event, and, and really no article was published until Thursday night and throughout Friday about the incident. I don't want to get into a larger conversation in which I'm either vilifying or justifying him on this show, but what I want to say is that if I had known this had happened, it's something that we would have had to have talked about on this podcast, and I and I think, after doing this hour with him, I really do believe that he would be willing to talk about it. He's he's honest, and and genuine and sincere like that. And uh, again, he is a very good actor, and so he could be bullshitting me on this show. That's sort of the agreement two people enter when they do the podcast. But I believe in his sincerity. I believe in his heart, and. Mostly, I believe in his apology that he issued to The Hollywood Reporter. In the interest of fairness, I'm going to read a bit from that. He said, In making the point that many people casually used the N-word at the time, 
in which the movie's story takes place in 1962, I used the full word. Although my intention was to speak strongly against racism, I have no right to even imagine the hurt that is caused by hearing that word in any context, especially from a white man. I do not use the word in private or in public. I'm very sorry that I did use the full word last night and will not utter it again. And again, I think there have been uh, hundreds and hundreds of apology statements issued in the past few years um, from varying kinds of celebrities. They're hard to accept and um, they're hard to hear as something that is honest or genuine and... uh, I think what he did was wrong and fucked up, and I have to imagine that uh, he knows that, and that he's going to have to grapple with that, and I think he will. And to the larger point, I know it is maybe not popular for me to say this or to even cite this, but uh, I think Dave Chappelle's latest special really hit the nail on the head which is we're going to keep running into uh, imperfect allies. And if we do not accept them, I think there's going to be no one left. I think there's going to be like seven people in a room that are saintly and lovely human beings, but it's going to be really lonely. So, you know, it's a tricky situation. And I, and I saw that Mahershala Ali has uh, accepted Vigo's apology while still making sure to illustrate uh, that this is a problem and that this word really can't be accepted in 2018, not in this climate, not under this president, not where this country is. And, uh, you know, I, I hope we have less and less of these talks about this word and instead have real conversations about the still... Uh, pervasive problems when it comes to race in America. For what it's worth, uh, I'm going to follow Mahershala's lead and uh, also accept Vigo's apology. Although I'm a a, a white-slash-Mexican man who is not as deeply affected by this word, so I don't don't begrudge anyone who cannot accept his apology, um, who feel that this is crossing a line. And I understand those who can't listen to an interview with him. That is fair, and that is your right. Perhaps after listening to this conversation, if you do decide to listen to it, you can have your own conversation about what you can and cannot forgive. I can't tell you what to do, and uh, no one really can. You have to make your own determination. I know that's a longer-than-usual introduction for this show, but... Uh, we're trying to do a show of transparency here and, and the show where all the cards are on the table. So there it is. And here, finally, is Vigo Mortensen. Let's go back. So sure. your first film is with Peter Weir. I've heard you discuss this First film I wasn't cut out of. Yes, I, I know the ones you were cut out of. Mm. I was not going to bring them up because I don't want to step nah. on old wounds. Nah, it doesn't bother me at all. I, I had, I mean, I had fun in the doing. I still remember vi- vividly in 19, 
winter of 81, 82, it was early 82, being out in some mansion on Long Island, a freezing cold day, and, and having a day's work on a Woody Allen movie called uh, Purple Rose of Cairo. And I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Didn't you tell your family, hey, I'm going to be in this film? Oh, yeah. And so what's the conversation like when they go... Two good directors. I mean, that was Woody Allen, and the other one was Swing Shift with Jonathan Demme. Are Very like, nice people. But did they wonder, you know, wh- why are you not in the movie? I think they started to wonder what I actually was doing in New York City. They didn't, you know, is it, was it some, like, drug-induced fantasy that was leading me to tell them, go, make sure you go to the movies, you know, on Friday, and I'm in there, and I'm wearing this, you know brown suit and it's 1920s and I got a cocktail and I have this thing I'm talking about Cecil B. DeMille it's really funny Cecil B. DeMille and (laughs) Jesus on the cross and I don't know what we were talking about that's such a good movie and then uh, yeah it is a very good movie and then Swing Shift same thing after that I just stopped telling them until I'd seen the movie were they supportive of you acting early on? my mom was very always my dad when he saw that I didn't start making a living paying the rent you know, in the first six months or so, he was like, eh. Uncertain. Yeah, maybe you should try something else. I mean, because he said, well, what's the deal? How do you get to work? I said, well, there's thousands and thousands of actors that want to do the same thing as me. And you got to be lucky and you got to work hard like anything else. And he goes, it sounds like a losing proposition. And perhaps you should go buy a tie. Maybe if you show up wearing a tie, I'm like, what does that got to do with it? He goes, well, you know, when, professional. when you go to look for a job, if you wear a tie... That could be the trick. That could they could be impressed by that. I said, yeah, if I'm playing like some sociopath from some like uh, godforsaken neighborhood, it's, I'm probably not going to wear a tie. Probably doesn't have a tie. Right. Exactly. Well, he didn't get that. But anyway, he was. He didn't mean any harm. But my mom was very supportive. I mean, in fact, she's the one that I have the earliest memory of seeing movies in a movie theater with. You know, she would take me occasionally. Mm-hmm. I'm the oldest of three boys and. I first started going with her when I just had one brother. Yeah, the third one hadn't been born yet. And um, and I really liked that. And she was always interested in the story behind the movie. In other words, the script. Um, The life behind it. Yeah, she would ask. She would, not ask, she would just say, interesting how when this happened, and then he remembered, and then she did this. It was all plot-related. Uh, it was kind of a you know it was a screenwriting analysis that she would give me a sense you know, whether it was Lawrence of Arabia or some small you know Argentine movie we were living in Argentina at the time she knew her stuff so she was really I mean when I first started out going to auditions with her it wasn't that she, it was the opposite of my dad who was saying well maybe this is you're not cut out for this she was she would say so now what what are you doing tomorrow I said well I have two auditions and it's just something to play for no money it's just off 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 broadway thing so she was pushing you and she said well who's directing i go i can't remember right now you don't know the director no i don't know who wrote it what is it i said it's just a it's a one-act play it's a you know she said, well it's it would uh, let me tell me the story and i was like you know what i can't because because it would just it felt like too much but now in retrospect it was great and and i did I did keep her as informed as I could be as I went along, but I tried to not let her know unless I thought I had a good chance to get the part, because otherwise it was just too many questions. And then later, all the questions about, well, why didn't you get it? What did you do? Maybe you did this wrong. Maybe you did that. You know what I mean? Mm. I know we just met, and we know nothing about each other, really. I probably know more about you than you know about me. Where are you from? Chicago. 
I know your mother has passed. Do you miss having her around to to be there for you in a way that most people probably can't? Yeah, I do. Yeah, of course I do. And uh think about her a lot. And uh I mean I think about my dad too and in different ways they kind of uh they resonate in in, in the characters I play and in and how I prepare, I suppose, in a way. Like, I would be ready for her questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Generally, I, I... And you'd have to give sufficient answers to them. Mm, yes, exactly. My mother's the same way. I mean, she's a lawyer. Oh, yeah. And so she, like, is great at... If I say something, i got to make sure it's foolproof, otherwise... How does she feel about your line of work? Well, I've pivoted because I've, I've been directing this year in writing. Oh. So she's... Uh, fiction? Documentary? Yeah, fiction. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. What are um, you doing? Well, my... This is a completely... You're asking me in a weird time because the first movie I ever made is short. It just came out this morning. I'm actually, kidding. About a grandfather from Mexico. It's called Sebastian. Oh, wow. And so it's full circle mm-hmm. here. He immigrated here from uh, in Mexico in 1948. Is it in Spanish and English? It's in Spanish. Oh, cool. English subtitle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so she feels okay. She feels skeptical. She's nervous. About the directing about anything in this industry yeah I well mean, yeah, it's yeah precarious ground sure yeah yeah it seemed like your mom enjoyed the pageantry of it though the yeah like, she liked going that. to the shows and going definitely to yeah she knew and she kept up you know she would read the magazines and the stuff and then, uh, when she went to the SAG thing you know, she was stealing programs off other people's tables <laughs> you know and was, but she didn't eat because she kept getting up oh there's John Travolta and she'd run over and talk to him she was and, proud yeah, and then she would be talking to these people and she would look over my way and be pointing and I could just see her my lips going that's my son yeah you know, like that and I was like oh my god and so I just ate my dinner I was just sitting there sort of by myself you know because people were obnobbing including my mom but at the end of that night she um Sorry to go on about that, but she no. uh, she finally said, you know, I'm really hungry. I didn't, they took all the food away. I go, well, yeah, because you, you just were like a bumblebee, you know, all night. And uh, you never sat down. And she goes, okay. She goes, well, do you think we get something now? The chicken looked good. And I said, well, I'll ask. And then they brought her a plate, and we sat there. And, and it, was like the, it was like, you know how it is after an award. Four-fifths of the people there and their friends and their mm, representatives, you yeah. know, their support staff, whatever it is, that whoever goes with people. The I mean, team. The team. I mean, my mom, it was just me and my mom, you know. But other people have serious teams. Well, four-fifths of those are losers. So there's this quiet sort of exodus, and then it's like a circus that's you know about to pack up. It's all these empty tables, and my mom's sitting at a table, and a few stragglers wandering out. One was Diane Lane, who I'd worked with on a movie called Walk on the Moon. And she came by and she sat down for a minute and my mom was really happy to meet her and that was wonderful. That was probably worth the whole the whole uh, night. And then we were basically the last people there. I just waited for her. And she goes, do you think there's any dessert left? I said, I can ask. And then I went, I think they were gone. And the cooks were gone. And I said, we're going to have to, we'll stop somewhere. We can go somewhere else. I'll stop and get your candy bar at 7-Eleven or something, you know. That is the only reason to stay that long <laughs> at an award show. <laughs> yeah. You started acting around 23 24 something like that yeah about 23 so i i'm this age right now and i and i i guess i want to know i don't know how often you're reflecting or if you're a nostalgic person but can be um at that time in those early years of finding your footing did you believe that it was going to work out for you 
I didn't question it. I tried acting because I, you know, made a transition. I was like working at a at a uh, an art house theater, you know, selling tickets and selling popcorn and in New York at the time when I was just starting. Uh, and I had been living in Denmark for a couple of years before that, where I have family. I was living and working there, you know, doing some, like factory work and stuff and dock work. I mean, you know, manual labor. And um, But I was seeing lots of movies there as well. And I started seeing older movies, you know, Brisson, you know, like French New Wave movies, older uh, French movies, uh, Japanese movies, etc. Cetera, et cetera, Bergman, yeah, know, lots of Scandinavian cinema. And I was. Some of the performances were incredible, and I, I thought I was just asking myself, "What's the trick? Why am I crying? Why does the lights come up and I'm surprised I'm in a movie theater? I love this. This is kind of like what I loved about going with my mom when I was a little kid. But now I'm asking as an adult, what's the trick? How do they do that to me? Make me feel that what they're feeling, what's happening, is mm-hmm. totally real. And furthermore, I often relate it to my own life experience, and it's kind of it hurts or it's funny in a certain way." how do they get that done these actors and I thought I want to try that to see what it is and I figured I'd give it till I was 30 maybe you know like you put a deadline on it I did I kind of thought well that's a long time like seven years it seemed like a, you right. know, forever at that age and so I was like I'll just try that and chances are it won't work but I'll try it in the anonymity of New York City uh, I moved there and uh, and you know, I tried it because I wanted to see what it was like. And then in subsequent years, as I stuck with it, I and started learning how it really worked, I realized it's not just that actor or that actress. It's the other people in the scene. The it's, whole thing. It's how it's photographed. It's what lenses are used, what the lighting is, what the musical cues, how it's edited, what emphasis the director asked them to put on certain moments, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot to it. And so I... I became more and more intrigued with the collective storytelling aspect of it that it was a little different. I mean, there's a collective aspect to writing poetry or taking photographs or drawing, painting, anything because you're influenced by your environment. So you're... You do all of those things, yeah. Yeah, and I have a publishing house. And editing, I love editing uh, someone's work, helping them put out a book because... I don't have the pressure. The pressure isn't on me. I don't feel that insecurity. I can right. look more clearly at it. I said, well, I can help you with this. I, I can see this would work. I think if you rearrange this or just lose this poem or start with this paragraph, or I don't think you need a preface. Editing, just go right into it. You know what I, I mean? Yeah, I feel like editing someone's writing is like the most uh, academic in that you're just exploring ideas. Yeah. And you don't have to take ownership of them because it's not your byline. Right. And you just get to play... In other people's words and you get ideas, to facilitate. And, yeah, but those things, anything you do artistically, there's some collaborative aspect because your environment influences what you do. But movie making is clearly, ideally, uh, collaborative. You know, as I was saying, I realized, oh, it's not just that actor. Well, how did that actor? What? Are, what is that screenplay? Right. Who helped him get to that? What actress or actor helped him? Pushed him? You know, etc. What was his training before? Who taught him? You know. Etc. There's a whole history. Yeah, and uh, every once in a while you get on a movie where it's made in that spirit. Green Book was one, Captain Fantastic was definitely one, where the directors the first day are basically saying, hey, we get one crack at making this, and I want to make the most of it. I don't pretend to know everything. Uh, bring the ideas. I mean, a good idea, a good modification could come from anyone. Right. And these are guys that had very strong scripts, you know, 
very good foundation, and it was great. It's practical on their side, but it's also... It creates a mood on the set where, as an actor, anyway, you look behind the camera at any moment. Let's say you sort of are not on your game in a given take. It's still okay, but you just you notice the people behind the camera suddenly. They're not on their phones and eating a sandwich. They're kind of watching. It's like being in a theater yeah. and the audience is into what you're doing. Well, they feel emboldened. Yeah, they're part of the storytelling, and that's great, great feeling. I know that's exactly what happened. On Witness, which is your first movie yeah. that you're in, that you're not cut out of yeah. the Peter Weir film. Um, I want to. I want to know how that experience set you up for what would follow, which I imagine most movie sets were not quite like the, the, the sort of professionalism of, of Witness and the, and the calmness that was on that set. Yeah, I mean Peter Weir is just a very. He's a gentleman. He's extremely knowledgeable has a very agile mind creatively in terms of making shots and storytelling and his his cinematographer on that movie John John Seal I think it was his name yeah, yeah. John Seal uh, it was amazing as well I mean everybody on that crew it was actually gave me the wrong impression of what, what it's like most of the time as you say you know it was very calm there was no yelling I don't think I don't know if they ever went overtime. It was pleasant. They got the shots they needed. Yeah. Uh, and then they said, "Come and see dailies." That was in the days where they still projected film dailies, and uh, it was 1984 summer, and uh, it was a great experience. Um, and I thought, well, I like this movie thing because at that point, the day I got the job on that movie, you got Shakespeare also. Yeah, I got a Shakespeare in the Park job, and I had to choose between them and my representative said wow you live in New York you can do play anytime you should you should do this and it's not every day Peter Weir asks you to come do I go but it's like just a day's work he goes well you never know sure enough I did that day's work and he came over at lunchtime he goes you know you look you have a resemblance to Alexander Goodenough the guy playing Harrison Ford's um, competition for the the affections of Kelly McGillis the Amish woman and uh, he said you could look like his younger Amish brother I said Huh, yeah, maybe. He says, what are you doing the next six weeks? I go, nothing. I'm going back to New York or tomorrow. And he goes, well, if you don't mind staying. And so, you know, they paid me minimum wage, and I stayed. And I found a, like a used bicycle, and I would ride around because I wasn't working every day. But right. I was welcome to come to the set every day and watch how they worked. And I thought, this is wonderful. I made the right choice. I mean, that uh, is a kind of great life. I'm into the movie business. This is so beautiful, the way they're doing this. And they're so <laughs> nice to each other, and the story's so good, and everything's so cool. And then it took me about 20 years before I ran into a set that was like that again. <laughs> it's not the norm. Usually there is yelling and tension, and the script isn't quite ready by the time they get the green light, and they just shoot anyway, and it's kind right. of chaotic. Well, there's money, and there's actors, and we have yeah. to put it out in exactly. a release date that we are abiding to. Precisely. What is um, your life like in the 90s? Late 80s, I moved uh, to Los Angeles. And then I, I last about a year here. And then I get married and move with my wife and son, baby son. We moved to northern Idaho and stayed there for a couple of years. And, and then... Uh, Why did you guys move? Uh, I just wanted to get out of L.A., and she also had been living in L.A. for quite a while, and she was tired of it, and she liked the idea of moving to a small town or to the country. Mm. So we literally left in this old pickup, put all our stuff in the back, and 
headed north and just looking and I wanted to keep going we got to the Canadian border and she goes alright I'm done because we had a baby it was summer it was hot and it was like an old pickup truck and so I found a motel cheap motel and they just I need to sleep so she lay down with the baby I said well I'm just going to go up British Columbia and check, check around so I spent the day driving a little more and, I, and then I came back and I said well this town up in northern I know is as nice as anything I see up there so so we stayed in that motel and I found the next day I found a house with a yard and a you know picket fence and a backyard and a garden and all that and a barn for like 300 bucks a month so we rented that and stayed there for a while have you always been that kind of person in what sense in a sense that uh you just got married for the first time you had a child Mm. you're figuring out your career it's going i think mostly well well at that point not really no i mean after witness which came out in 85 you're getting bit parts not hardly anything really nothing um, that was and then I went to LA and I was trying to find stuff I did a play right uh, Bent in Santa Monica and then uh, I really and then I got a very small part in a movie called Fresh Horses and eventually Sean Penn saw that as one scene at the end of that movie and that's where he wanted to cast me in The Indian Runner and I got that part which was one of the leads in that movie we shot in Nebraska in 1990. And, but I've had that experience several times where, you know, people will say, oh, well, you now you're in. You know, that's a really cool movie and your part's really good and you're on your way. You're set. And I wasn't. You know, I don't know if it was my fault or it doesn't really matter. It just wasn't meant to be. And so I've, I've been, like, discovered and on my way. I was repeatedly, you know, so in 93, you know. I mean, a couple of years later, it was, I don't know, it was uh, Crimson Tide and things like that. I started getting more work here and there, you know, some Western I did. And, you know, gradually I started working a little bit more, a little bit more. And it was probably an okay way to go because I learned watching how movies are shot, how, you know, the camera department works, how the actors work, how when directors do it well, like Peter Weir, that first experience that first good one um, how to make a movie in the right way how to help from my end of it to facilitate the, the group effort to tell yeah. a story in the movies and so I, I learned a lot as I went along and I didn't have any I wasn't expected to do this I wasn't even told that there was a premiere if there even was one depending on the size of the movie it was just like hey did my job I got I can get my SAG insurance back and I can right. pay the rent for another three months and it was that kind of you know not very looking too far ahead and uh, maybe the move I was told I was set yeah you know several times but and you it weren't. didn't really happen for quite a while it wasn't really till really in a big way obviously till probably Lord of the Rings even though I had been working for 15 18 years by that point right yeah. I think I'm describing what I believe or what I'm perceiving to be I don't know just like a kind of fearlessness like you you and your family moved and I think a lot of people would be like well we we gotta have a plan and we gotta have a house and definitely we wouldn't just like get into a car and take and, off uh, yeah. Do you, yeah you know what I'm talking about well that probably wasn't a smart career move because I remember when we were up there we were pretty broke uh, but you were following your heart, right? Is that, yeah, that's I was happy up there. We were really happy up there for a while. And I would get a, I would look in the penny saver paper in that town, 
And I would say, oh, one-way ticket from Spokane, Washington to mm. Los Angeles Greyhound, 50 bucks or best ticket. You know, and I would go and I would say, oh, I'll buy it. You know, by that, at that time, there's no, it wasn't like internet. It was like call someone on the phone or I'll drive over some town right. nearby. Give him 50 bucks. He gave me this ticket. I said, is this a real ticket? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I'd get on the bus and go down to Los Angeles with no ticket back. And then I'd stay on a friend's couch and try to get some auditions and then usually whiff and not get any and then once you know that or i'd get a small part in a horror movie or something and then and then i'd get tired of it and i'd say well i gotta back to family and i'd find another ticket and go back to idaho and i did that for for a couple years there and then eventually she started performing again on maxine and um she ended up going back to la and then i got indian runner and but none of those things were you know, it's like the engine would start and run for a little while, yeah, and then, then I'd have to out. start over again. So it was yeah. like an old beat-down car that you could kind of get running for a little bit, <laughs> right? And then it would die on. Yeah, you. and it was fine. I mean, I learned a lot. I wasn't really. Uh, I had no illusions that I deserved to be uh, doing better career-wise. Although sometimes, like all young actors, I think I would see somebody who you saw on auditions. Yeah, or I'd see someone on a, in a movie. Or on TV, but usually movies, and and I'd see and I'd see them do a job that was okay, but I knew that they were you know it was a big part and their their career was like had taken off and I'm like well, it's not that great I know a lot of guys that could have done that better you know what I mean including me maybe yeah. you know you that's what you think, but that's the the classic the envy thing and it wasn't like a nasty envy it was just like well, maybe I'll get lucky I could see that right. there was a lot of luck to it I also knew friends who said, you know, I'm getting married. Oh, that's great. And I'm not going to act anymore. I'm going to teach at such and such a place. I go, why? No, you're great. You know, people who are really talented. Excellent. Uh, theater, and, you know, film actors. And they just couldn't do it anymore. It's a, it's a, uh, you know, there is a certain amount of, uh, there's a lot of people that do fall by the wayside who there's no rhyme or reason to it. They really are great but they just decide personally for life reasons it's not good it's not good for them so I'm conscious I'm very conscious of that you know like say when I got nominated for an award and so forth those two times you know that there's more than five performances that or ten movies that, that are you know not even in this country but forget about the world you right. know? and uh, you know and so there's always people that are left out ridiculously and and so it's a, just a kind of a crapshoot, you know, really. So you can't, if it happens, it's, it's great, it's nice, especially if you, like, take your mom or something. But other than that, it's it's not something that... It doesn't really affect how I view my work. In other words, let's say I never got a nomination for... Or Captain Fantastic didn't get a SAG Ensemble nomination, although we didn't win, but for, you know, for our cast... I thought that was well-deserved and it was great, but if we had not got that, and the fact that we lost, we didn't win that award, didn't make me suddenly sit back and go, well, maybe our movie isn't as good as I thought. I know it's great. And I know the experience was great. So that's what I mean by it doesn't bother me that I was cut out of those first two speaking parts Mm -hmm. I had with good directors, Demi and Woody Allen. The experience of doing them was, was really cool, and I still remember them, just like I remember scenes that we shot on in Green Book that were memorable and that we didn't end up using but it's still right. something that I got to experience and I enjoy that so whatever happens is, it doesn't it doesn't matter that much really mm. it matters to the 
to people investing money in the movie. They want the movie oh, to do part. well, and I would like it to do well too because I think it deserves it. The money part, the art and commerce conversation. I don't think. Uh, yeah. Did you have to scramble around looking for money for your? Movie? Um, well, they're shorts, four shorts. So we got money for the first one, old family friend, and we got a little money for the one that came out today. Great. But I also have a couple credit cards. Yeah. And I'm sorry, my mom. Mom's gonna listen to this. But I just <laughs> he'll 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 be good for it. You know, uh, that's kind of my. It's an investment in myself. I have a feeling he's talented. <laughs> And I think that he will uh, make the money back and then some. So just don't worry about it. Great. I'll send this audio to her. Okay. Um, along with my credit card statements. I've been doing that thing. I, I have a project that I'm going to direct this winter. And I've been, I did, as we were doing this week, all this Green Book press. I was also at the American Film Market. Ah, yeah. It's been happening. Two long days where you... That was an unusual experience. You sit in a room and then... I, I kind of hate it. Five to it's, 12 people come in. I've never seen it. Well, I've been sort of peripherally yeah. visited once, you know, because I had produced three other movies. And so, you know, I've seen a little bit of that there in Cannes Film Festival. You know, the market thing, the sort of the, how they make the sausage kind of thing. And uh, But this one was incredible. You sit in a room, they come in. There's five to ten to twelve people from different countries, and they're poker faced because they don't want to. If they're really interested, they yeah. don't want to give away anything because they want to lowball you. Of course, what they're going to buy your movie pre-sales and stuff. But so you are also in a very unique position than a lot of people going in trying. Sure, to sure, sell. sure. Because people. But know you've who at you least are. directed a movie, so you're saying, "Look at these two. <laughs> I'd like to do another one." I was. I had you nothing. know what? I think they will take. Vigo Mortensen over like the four shorts I've made. I don't know. I don't know. It depends. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to be a fine director. <laughs> Thank you. Attention. To, you seem to have attention to detail. <clears throat> I um, yeah, I'm kind of. I am a little meticulous. Yeah, it probably drives some people crazy. Actually, Mahershal Ali is is very similar. So that kind of gave me a license to to do my thing, and I I had a, a kindred spirit. In in the late nineties. Before we get the Lord of the Rings, which I don't really want to talk about that much, that's fine. Um, was it a challenge to balance acting and being a father and being a partner in the early two thousands? You mean or late yeah, 90s? late nineties, early two thousands? Yeah, when when things were starting um, to pick up a little bit. Yeah, it was tricky, like for any parents that you know both work. Right. You know, it's there'd be periods. I mean, there's a long period where I didn't. I only got small parts, if any. So I was home a lot when he was really small, and, you know, Xenia would be on tour. And then later on, when I started working more, then there were periods where I wouldn't see him for a while, and he'd be with her. And then we'd have to, just the logistics, sometimes if she, well, i got to go on tour now, so he'll come with, you know, his godmother. Somebody will fly to where you're working, and then he would stay the rest of the shoot with me. And we just worked it out. It's Mm -hmm. kind of the life of actors who are parents. I mean, people know what that's like, you know. And um, just do the best you can. It didn't seem like a... I didn't feel ever that it was an impediment to me working or to her, you know. Yes, as a parent, you know, when you want to think or read or something, you have to wait till they're asleep when they're really small. And then and sometimes you're too tired by the time you get that moment to yourself to, like, read the script or go back to reading that novel that you haven't looked at for a few days. You just pass out, you know. And that's, that's the life of... Parents. Yeah. Parent. yeah. Someone overworked. 
Yeah, it's run, run down. That's the norm. I think any parent uh, knows that deal. If they're involved, if they're not involved, or if they're some, they're living in some golden existence and have lots of servants or something, and they don't actually do the parenting. Right. You know, there are, I guess, rare cases of that. Then, whatever you trade having a relationship with your kid and with the consequences that that might have as they get into adolescence and feel that mm. they've been shorted maybe I don't know uh, but if you have a relationship that's somewhat normal with your kid then you know what the deal is you know you sacrifice otherwise why are you having the kid you've played a father in, in three movies I'm thinking about especially uh, Green Book here um, History of Violence and Captain Fantastic all very different kind of dads right I want to know how uh, how does your father the road I mean I have a lot of yeah no I'm just thinking these three yeah, 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 I sure. can't go through the whole no, thing no, 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 you know we only have so much time here exactly how how does your father and you as a father affect going into those movies mm, depends on the part so let's start in order let's do a history of violence well it's a rare case I mean my father was not someone who hid his true self and was a completely different person with a different identity and different name right. and all that. Uh, was he an honest person? Well, yeah, I think he was averagely honest. Um, but, but what I thought, I remember thinking clearly when I was shooting that movie and talking about this with Cronenberg that we all have a persona that we kind of put on like a costume every morning when you wake up depending on where you're going, what you're doing, you dress accordingly, you get ready accordingly or not, right? and then you go face the day. And each person you run into, there's slight modifications in your behavior, how you want to come across, how you want to be perceived, what you want from that encounter, or what you want to avoid in that encounter, etc. So in a way, we're all doing this play acting. It's a way of keeping sane. It's only the people who we choose to think are insane who go around saying whatever comes into their head and you know wearing tinfoil hats or being naked and screaming and <laughs> it's like but they're just they're freer in a way but there's a controlled we're trying to control our environment and control the perception of ourselves for safety uh, for for gain mm. for um, have you and I been doing that in this conversation I don't know. I mean, I must, I guess we must in some way. I don't feel, I feel pretty comfortable here. I mean, I'm looking at you and we have two microphones and I'm conscious of, I'm glad I'm a certain distance away and I don't want to get you sick with my cold and I think I'm doing all right with that. And, uh, and I, every once in a while I mention something, like if you bring up a certain movie, there's certain things I like to emphasize because I'd like that perception to be taken into account or I try to... I'm someone who makes comparisons and tries to find parallels in people, how they behave, and in projects, and, you know. But the idea of, you know, I do think, uh, I don't know what writer it was, I don't think it was Proust, I think it was maybe, maybe it was Schopenhauer. I think he, he talked about how if you get to be like 85 years old and you look back at your life, there seems to be a certain order, a certain meant-to-be to it. It's like a novel. And uh, whereas as you're living your life, it's, it's random and chaotic and frustrating and maybe tragic and lots of things. But there doesn't seem to be any order to mm. it. Um, so when people 
try to find a through line. Well, you seem to play characters that are this, or when you try, you know, your movies all seem to be, and it's like, it might be true. Right. But generally, I would say I'm not conscious of that. I'm not good at that. I don't yeah. know how to. I'm drawn to, obviously, right. just like anybody is, to certain kinds of stories. But I do like stories that have contrasts in them. I like stories that are thought-provoking. And I just, as a, as a writer and as an editor, I like a script that's well-structured and that can surprise me, you know, in terms of its dialogue, in terms of its, you know, the plot lines. I mean, you know, I enjoy it in that sense to not just like, oh, look at this part. I can kick ass with this part. The movie has to be good too, ideally, right. you know what I mean? And that's obviously when I first started and we're talking about the 90s and like that, I was lucky to just steadily pay the rent, you know what I mean? But that was a different time. Yeah. You didn't have a pick and But choose. I still tried to. Of course. And I would wait until I was flat broke until then I'd have to do something. But fortunately, I did get little parts here and there that right. were, were cool. But you don't want to be the best player on a bad team. It's like, it's like no, it's like, some people don't mind that. and In fact, some people like that. Right. I think a little bit. But this is true it's like they like hearing, like, well, the movie was so-so, but you were incredible. Excellent. No, yeah, but what kind of... That's but the there kind are of people person. that like that. Well, that's the kind of person that does, that accepts parts, thinking, this is good. And then he's he loses his leg, and then he cries, and then he wants to get an operation and be a woman. And I, I could win yeah, an Oscar. So I could win an Oscar for this. I'm, I'm exaggerating. But there are people that do that. That's fine, too. Like, some people just... I, I, I met one guy who said... Yeah, I'm so happy I got this part. Well, you know what I want to do? I just want to get, I want to make millions of dollars, and I want to be really famous, and I want to just party. Mm. And but he was really happy. Different desires. So who cares? That's like, who am I to say that's not okay? Why not? And they might do good work in the process. So, sometimes, if that can happen, then that's really a, a rarity. Right. Has it been a challenge for you to, you know, it seems like you followed your heart. On, on your in your career, if you look through the IMDb, much as I could, you don't do shit that you don't want to do. In recent years, no, but I have the luxury uh, because I have a track record, and that helps. And because I've saved up some money, so then I can wait it out, you know. Or in the case of the last few years, I mean, it's a few years since Captain Fantastic, so we shot that. My mother was ailing at the time, and my dad was starting to, and so I was like. The last couple of years, I was dealing with that pretty much, uh, and uh, I have other pursuits and stuff, and it's just like what everybody goes through. Yeah, it was, but it gave me a lot to to be there, and I would feel really terrible now if I hadn't done that. If I said, "No, I need to do all these roles, and I'll see them; they'll be all right. They'll last a little longer." It's like I didn't want to do that, and I'm glad I didn't. I feel good about it. That was my choice, you know, and I was fortunate, you know, somebody that checks out for a few years no matter if they've been working a lot especially if they're you know my age you could kind of vanish a little bit so I'm really grateful to Pete Farrelly that suddenly he writes an email and says I got this story it's a little different than what I've been doing and I think you'd be right for this guy so I had no idea what I was getting into and it's it's a project that's every bit as good as Captain Fantastic so I was lucky those three years didn't cost me the momentum right. you know in the sense like going to Idaho when I was first starting out it's like what are you doing that for and just like whatever little momentum you've had is gone you know you may be happy putting in a garden and vegetable garden and <laughs> going fishing but it's like nobody cares about that are you happy <laughs> I am happy yeah I am 
Your days seem full. It feels like you have a lot, a lot of projects. Yeah, but I have, I have a lot of friends, and I'm staying with my son now while I'm in Los Angeles. So that makes me happy. We have a good time together, and uh, you know, I'm I'm happy with who I live with, and I'm happy with my work. And even though it's, you know, there's a certain grind aspect to spending months on the road promoting a movie, any movie, the fact that I know it's a good movie, right. it, it makes it easier because you're like, yeah, I mean, you want people to see it and, and when they see it, they seem interested in it. So that makes it a hell of a lot easier. And so you end up talking about other things too. I have this quote here that I love, that you love. It's from a philosopher. I don't want to butcher his name. I think it's Lao Cha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, close. He wrote, uh, if you don't change direction, then you may just end up where you're headed. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. What does that mean to you? Right now, I know you're, uh, you just turned 60. Right. To me, right now, it just means keeping your eyes and ears open and listen to people, trust people a little bit. Trust your experience with people uh, with your work and with the world like trust your instincts but but remain open to things changing completely you know I do think that there's a certain you know thing I sort of referred to earlier that people it's a way of just functioning in the world you know we get up we brush our teeth we hopefully wash and stuff we do stop at red lights generally and we try to show up on time for interviews and whatever it is that we have to do but some people don't and I can understand it if you know you're going to die why brush your teeth why stop at a red light who gives it you know who cares why be nice to anybody you know let's just like cut the bullshit it's like you know what I mean and there are people that do that and it's like okay that's okay I mean maybe it's not okay some of the behavior but I understand Mm. Um, so I do think we try to we try to impose an order on our daily life and our surroundings, the way we decorate, the way we hang something on the wall, and if it's crooked, we straighten it, uh, the way we clean a house, you know, the way we weed a garden, the way we are careful on how we speak to someone. All those things are about maintaining your sanity, thinking that things are a lot more orderly and predictable. If you just do these things, it's going to be... You know, I can kind of, yeah, I'll be there by 9.55 and I'll, and then tomorrow I'll catch that flight and, you know, and I think I'll wear the blue, you know, t-shirt and that should be fine because I'll wash that tonight. You have these plans and it's like they can go wrong in a second. And they often do. Like they went wrong last night in Thousand Oaks at that bar where, uh, uh, did you hear about that? A former Marine went in with a handgun and shot 12 people including a, a, a Ventura County Sheriff's Department yeah, police officer who was about to retire, who was on his phone talking to his wife, and he goes, oh, i got to go into this thing. And he went in and confronted the guy and stopped him from killing a bunch of other people. He was like a Marine, the guy, and he was very accurate. He shot 12 people, and they got him. I don't know why he did it, but that, I know where that bar is. It's in Thousand Oaks, and it's like a kind of sort of a, country western dance bar kind of mm. place and that's never happened there and that's one of the safest towns around so suddenly all those people and people related to them 
all these things that seemed orderly and predictable are not anymore. There's chaos always. Yeah, I think it's always there, and we just try to pretend we can manage it. And that's all we can do is kind of pretend we're managing it and manage it for periods until it's taken out of our hands, you know, just like life is eventually, you know. You know, people like to sometimes not like to, but they tend to say, well, why haven't we made more progress about civil rights and racism? You know, we had the Civil Rights Act, and, you know, and now we're back to all this, like, acrimony and nasty discourse, and why? It's like, it's not surprising. I mean, each generation has to learn those things anew, find a way to put some sense of fairness and order in their lives. I mean, little kids, when they play together, when they're little, you know, if you can remember that, you play with kids, you don't think about what color their hair or their skin is or whether they have all their limbs or whether they can talk or see, whether they speak a language you understand or not. You just play, you just like, you're into it. Mm. And then somehow, society, your environment, some something, somebody, some combination of factors starts you differentiating, putting yourself above or below or beside but you're different than that. And so there's a, there's a separation from that which is different somehow. And then all, all you can hope is, or all I can hope for anybody is that in their adolescence or in their adult life, something or somebody or some circumst- combination of circumstances will help them unlearn that and learn anew to play nice, you know, and... If that happens, that's great. So it's, I don't, it doesn't shock me that, oh, look at how little progress we've made. It's like, no, it's like a, it's cyclical. You got to just keep, it's dull sometimes, but you got to keep working at it. It's Mm. just like, let's say you're editing one of your shorts, right? You get to a, you hit a wall, maybe sometimes you go, I don't know what to do. I wish we had this, another shot. And the obstacle forces you to be creative. Um, You know, circumstances force you to think differently force you to take a different path uh, and then you find you're not going any longer in the direction you were going five seconds ago mm. well thank you for uh, playing and wandering on this podcast with me thank you Viggo Mortensen it was an honor and good luck with your movies thank you, thank you. and to you Special thanks this week to Melissa McKeon, Craig Banky, and Barbara at the Sunset Tower Hotel for making this week's episode possible. If you'd like to see Vigo's latest film, it's called Green Book, and it will be out in theaters around the country on Thanksgiving. To learn more about Vigo and this podcast, you can visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. I also want to say thank you to everyone who um, has reached out about Sebastian, the film I directed about my grandfather. 
Um, it is available on Vimeo. If you do want to watch, the feedback has been uh, really, really overwhelming and, and lovely. And uh, I could not have possibly expected this feedback, but uh, it really does warm my heart. And it, and it warms my father's heart. I have read a bunch of social media comments to him because he is um, off the grid in that way. And our whole family were really just taken aback by people's support. So thank you for watching and, and for writing. And for those who have not seen it, uh, I hope you like it. As always, the show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.